This is an ABC podcast. I look forward to leading a government that makes Australians proud. This election didn't just change a government, it was a green slide. Safe Liberal seats, two term incumbents, independence. We need to go back to our values, our principles, look closely at what has happened. Our policies will be squarely aimed at the forgotten Australians in the suburbs across regional Australia. Hi there and welcome to The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvellis from RM Breakfast, joining you from Wurundjeri country. And I'm Fran Kelly from, frankly, on the Gadigal land of the Aora Nation. And PK, I've got a bad case of pre-budget confusion. Last week, it really looked as though the Albanese government was limbering up to drop the Stage 3 tax cuts or at least, you know, foreshadow it in some way in the October 25 budget. But now the Prime Minister seems to have well and truly popped that balloon. I know we're going to talk about this more with our guest today, David Crow from the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, but I hope he can help because it really does seem now much ado about nothing in the end. It's it's a bit much ado about nothing. Look, I think perhaps Anthony Albanese decided uh, to just leave it well alone, Fran, because it really unsettled (laughs) a lot and we got a taste of what the backlash against a so-called breaking of an election promise would look like. And I don't think that the Prime Minister liked what that looked like. If I can be frank, as you are, I'm frankly, let's be frank, he didn't like (laughs) the backlash. And so uh, the floating of the idea, which certainly didn't happen without him knowing, right? Didn't wasn't like, oh, mischievous, uh, you know, cabinet ministers bringing out this idea. He obviously thought, okay, well, maybe the public wants to have a discussion. Some parts of the public and economists did, whereas there was obviously a backlash, media commentary, all of it, which was pretty full on, as happens whenever you get a breaking of an election promise, even the language of just adjusting the stage three tax cuts to prune it, if you like, so that the the higher income earners are those over $200,000, over $150,000, whatever it might be, you know, don't get that, that uh, the big, big cut. Even that seemed too contentious. And so it was, it was shut down. The Prime Minister, by Sunday morning, we're recording this on a Thursday, many days after this, but on a Sunday morning, making sure that for insiders, you know, key political TV show, all of the times that people tune in for politics, that it was shut down very much by the the middle of the weekend before they went into this second week. And uh, uh, that 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 was put away. And then the Prime Minister, which I found really interesting, went a little further than just shutting it down for this budget and actually just shut it down more broadly. Although I think there's a bit of grey there, Fran, still. Um, There are those that still think there may be the possibility closer to it starting, which is 2024, for a bigger discussion again, whereas the Prime Minister seemed to um, just want to just put it away and want people to look in other places for cuts or for perhaps even revenue? What do you think? Well, I think that's a big ask considering the revenue job ahead and considering how kind of attractive that big pot of money from the stage three tax cuts would be. You know, we're talking what more than $250 billion or something over 
over 10 years, um, it's a lot of money and there is a lot of argu- there are a lot of arguments for why you could easily refashion them or, you know, slice them. Um, a lot of equity arguments, a lot of economic imperatives like aged care, child care, NDIS, defence, for instance. So I think it still lies there pulsing with this attractive pot of money for the government over the first couple of years, next few years. And I, I will I will eat my hat if those tax cuts go through as they are now. But, you know, I can feel that grab coming back to a party room podcast in years hence, PK. So, uh, look, I think he just decided to shelve it for now, which, you know, last week we discussed um, why did they bring it up in such a rush so close to this budget? It would clearly overshadow this budget, which was supposed to be a budget to, you know, settle the horses, as you say. It was supposed to be a budget to allow them to make the point that the old government's left things in a mess and here we've found some some revenue in some easy to pick places and, and you know, talk up some pretty mild cost of living um, help that they've got in this budget and, and talk more broadly, and we'll come back to this with David, about the need for structural change. So it wasn't supposed to be a radical kind of budget, which is what it would have been if they'd jumped into these stage three tax cuts now, I think. And, you know, PK, in reality, Anthony Albanese has a lot of other major issues on his plate, starting with the war in Ukraine, which took a deadly and frightening turn this week. The world watching on in horror as those Russian cruise missiles and drones rain down on Ukrainian cities again with impunity in scenes reminiscent of those first brutal days of the invasion. Yeah, it sure did. And Australia is clearly considered an important ally by Ukraine uh, at this time. I mean, even the fact that the Prime Minister Anthony Albanese had this key conversation, phone conversation with Volodymyr Zelensky uh, on Tuesday night in which they discussed more support for the Ukraine war effort in the face of Russia's increased aggression. That follows another phone hookup by the Ukrainian president with the Lowy Institute last week. So uh, the Ukraine president has been very, very active, as we know, um, incredible war leader that has been really... Uh, his advocacy internationally uh, and really keeping on side every friend he's got, that's the way I'd put it, and and cultivating those relationships has been extraordinary to watch. Um, We know that that a few different things are under consideration, Uh, a couple of different things, obviously Bushmasters, which has been on the record, the Ukrainian uh, defence has found them very useful, they've, they've said, and also a request for Australian military training that wouldn't happen on Ukrainian soil, but would uh, happen uh, somewhere else in Europe. Um, the PM confirmed it this week. Here he is. We'll make a decision over, over coming days. Uh, we'll give consideration to the requests uh, that have been made. And you're prepared uh, to send are, Australians to help? Well, the, the request is, is about training mm-hmm. and we'll give we'll give consideration uh, to that and make an, an announcement at an appropriate time. And that appropriate time, he said, you know, in my next follow-up question is literally within days. So we're recording this Thursday morning, Fran. People might hear it. We already might know what it is, what its final mm. shape is. But the message was clear that Australia will do more, whether that's training or, as Matthew Knott in the Sydney Morning Herald reported, the government may look to join an international crowdfunding effort to provide Ukraine with money for high-tech military equipment. But what we we know, though, is that no Australian troops will go on the ground uh, on Ukrainian soil. That's that's consistent with other support, that other help has come from the US. That hasn't happened on the soil. Obviously, it's quite risky to do it that way. Mm, sure. And 
And Australia, I mean, we're, we're big contributors, aren't we, Fran? Uh, outside of NATO countries, our legacy here is, has been pretty substantial, yeah? Oh, no, that's right. We are, as the Prime Minister keeps reminding us, the biggest non-NATO contributor to uh, the Ukraine support. I think it's up to $388 million so far in military assistance and $65 million in humanitarian assistance to Ukraine. We've all seen the Bushmasters and how they're being deployed there on the ground. They're very popular and I think um, when Zelensky spoke at the Lowy Institute, he said they would like more Bushmasters, so I'm sure that's on the list too of requests that we're going to get this package in a few days' time, as you said. But, you know, PK, this war is certainly shifted to a more dangerous level. Um, th there's been an emergency G7 meeting this week where leaders have warned of severe consequences if Russia uses nuclear weapons and G7 countries vowing to stand firmly with Kyiv for as long as it takes. What does that mean? Military strategists now, quite frighteningly, really putting the risk of some nuclear intervention by Putin as high as 30%. But look, that's not, we shouldn't frighten ourselves about this. It hasn't happened. Presumably he would be very cautious about taking a step like this because that escalates it where to a point where other countries would presumably have to move in. Um, you know, why are we involved when Ukraine is so far away from us? Because, as the Prime Minister said again this week, this struggle by the people of Ukraine is for the rights of every country to regard its borders as sovereign. They're fighting in Ukraine for the international rule of law. And so, you know, Western democracies, of course, need to come in behind that fight to uphold that international rule of law, basic premise of the UN, really. Yeah, that's that's right. And that, you know, we often talk about the differences on this podcast, uh, the political differences between, you know, the, this government, the previous government. But on this, this issue, there is a lot... We talk about division, but there's actually a lot of bipartisanship on all of this, right? It's the one oh, area. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, Peter Dutton is right there supporting the government in supporting Ukraine as the as the Morrison government did. You're right. There's absolutely not, uh, you know, cigarette paper of difference between them. Which which sometimes I think in, in political podcasts and in this space, we don't make enough of the unity on some mm. issues. So on, on this, absolutely. Look, there's another thing that happened this week that I think is worth noting, um, that was interesting. Uh, we had the the first formal beginnings of what appears to be a no campaign for the referendum on an Indigenous voice to Parliament. Indigenous businessman and former uh, Labor Party president. Then he kind of defected, which which switched sides. He has also been a Liberal Party candidate, unsuccessful. Warren Mundine. Uh, said Australians are not hearing both sides of the argument ahead of the referendum, which is expected in the next financial year. Now, on the front page of The Australian, a report was written that's being now contested and taken to the Press Council, in fact, by Lydia Thorpe, the Greens Senator for Victoria, which talked about Warren Mundine having a meeting with Lydia Thorpe um, and sort of seeing if there was unity on their different critiques of this voice to Parliament. Now, that report has been refuted by Green Senator Lydia Thorpe. In fact, she put out a statement and also says, as I say, that she's taking that story to the press council. But I did the morning it was published because it, it seemed to me quite significant that you'd get the left and the right to be working together on a no case. I, uh, we spoke to Warren Mundine on RM Breakfast. Here he is. Uh, this is not something I want to talk about at the moment. Uh, you'll be seeing over the next few weeks, uh, uh, you know, uh, huge things that will be happening uh, and about how how we will be running a campaign and we'll be reaching out to the government in regard to this as well. 
Mm. I heard that interview, PK, and you asked him directly about whether he was working with Lydia Thorpe on this, and he was pretty cagey about it, I thought, in your interview. Um, but as you said, and I think it is key to note that, that Senator Thorpe has definitely said she will not be campaigning for the no vote. She put out that statement in which she said, I will not be joining a no campaign. Black communities don't need more hurt. We need action through grassroots consultation. I am fighting to ensure truth and treaty are taken as seriously as voice. So she's absolutely saying she's not joining a no campaign, but she's also reiterating that position from the Greens, which puts them at odds, really, with the Labor position and some others. Uh, fighting to ensure truth and treaty uh, are put equally there along for action alongside the voice, which is not the position of the referendum, is it? No, because their timeline is quite clear. And there's a reason for that. I just want to explain the reason, if I can, because it's, it's not just random, the order that the Uluru Statement uh, participants and organisers have come up with. The reason they have this way that they say it should proceed is... Their argument is you can't even get things like treaty if you don't have a mechanism or an architecture or a body to actually negotiate with. <laughs> you need that architecture before you can even get, can get there. So that's their argument. Now, I do think it's significant, though, um, that Lydia Thorpe has been has put out this statement now saying she will not be campaigning for no. And I see this as significant for this reason the highest support for this referendum is among Green voters. The Greens know, and I'm talking at a leadership level here, Adam Bant and others, know how important this issue is for their base and they know that they have to make it crystal clear that even if they want to make the argument about order and other things, that they cannot be seen to be campaigning against it. Other criticism I've heard from Indigenous leaders, though, is that if they're muddying the waters and criticising, it still has a negative impact on the referendum, and that might That's be true. That's the problem. That's the problem here, isn't it? I yeah, mean, well, I, yes. think, I think Linda Burney has said, look, she's pretty confident uh, Green supporters will vote for the voice on a referendum, but we know from referendums past that if 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 any side if either side can can muddy the waters as you say can put confusion around it, then enough people might get unsettled enough to say, oh, I, I don't want to go for this yet because we don't know what we're doing, and that is the fear I think right now that any that kind of vacillation by the Greens um, politically, although their supporters will most likely vote yes, it just puts an, another element of confusion into this whole debate and that's never good for any referendum outcome. Yeah, for sure. And, and you know, this is there is still so much to be done to try and really build public support. Uh, clearly, Australians are, are warm to this idea if you look at the public polling, but um, you need to harden that yes to get a successful referendum because it's a really high benchmark for success. It's hard to do and that's why we haven't, you know, what's, what's the statistic which I find really interesting? No one under 40 has ever voted in a referendum. <laughs> so mm. uh, we had that weird postal survey um, but that wasn't a referendum and so this is this is different. It is. And we will be talking about it a lot more over the year ahead, I reckon. PK, should we bring in our guest? Let's do it. <laughs> Chief Political Correspondent for the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, David Crowe. Welcome back to The Party Room. It's great to be back at The Party Room. Hey, David, it's almost budget time and we'll get into that in a minute. But, but first, PK and I have just been talking about the Ukrainian President's request to Anthony Albanese for more Australian assistance in the 
war against Russia. Do we know any more specifics about that request and about the phone call between the two leaders? You know, there, there may be military training offered, we know that, but anything mm. else? No, it's pretty unclear at the moment as to what, in a practical sense, can be sent from Australia other than um, some personnel for training, um, but there's, there's talk about m- money, money being the more practical mechanism. Um, it's true that we can send um, the um, uh, armoured personnel carriers and the Bushmasters from Australia, but it's very slow to get them there. I mean, it's, there's only so many you can put on, on a Globemaster uh, RAF jet at a time. So, you know, I think it's three or four at a time. Uh, so there is talk about money um, because what the Ukrainians need much more than help with training is uh, weaponry and ammunition. Uh, it's, that's very clear. That's a message that you always get uh, from Ukraine. I was there in July and they said, we need weapons more than anything. Um, and the message from the Ukrainian ambassador is always about hard material from Australia. But I think uh, funding some assistance through NATO is still a very uh, quick and practical way of doing it because of the logistics of getting things from Australia. Obviously, President Zelensky thinks Australia is a really important base of support for Ukraine. I mean, strategically, there's a Mm. real relationship building going on here. Obviously, he wants the support. But why else would he be spending time talking to the Lowy Institute? I mean, what what do we have to offer more strategically, David? Well, we are an affiliated nation with NATO. We're not a NATO member, but we're very close with NATO. And so the practical help that we've offered through NATO does mean a lot in Ukraine. But it's also, the, I guess, the moral support that they get from Australia as well. And Zelensky is nonstop at building up that support around the world, including not just in our part of the world, but in Africa, for instance, where he he speaks to leaders in Africa to make sure that they know not to blame Ukraine for shortages of grain that are f- affecting their food supplies. So you see that kind of activity globally. Ukraine's very aware of the fact that um, uh, the relationship between China and Russia um, only makes things worse for Ukraine because it gives Russia a key ally. And so they see Mm. Australia's position through that prism in the Asia-Pacific, but also as a voice, uh, as an American ally as well, I think, makes us Yeah, so so if it's sort of Russia and therefore, you know, annexing China, then he needs to get the rest of the world. That's what you're saying. I think so. And, And we see that in the debate within the Quad, which also came up as a subject this week, because of course India is a member of the Quad. And, you know, we see the global debate about what's happening to Ukraine sends a message about what might happen with Taiwan in Asia. And so this very much taps into the the thinking uh, in Ukraine that that they are um, the sharp end of a debate around the world. Because of course, if Russia wins in Ukraine, then China is emboldened with Taiwan. I mean, that's the the very simple boil down mm-hmm. uh, dynamic here. And so therefore, there's an interest around the world in helping Ukraine, not just because of the fate of Ukraine, but because its fate then decides um, geopolitics in other domains, including uh, the Indo-Pacific. And that that is actually yeah. the argument that says to India, uh, you should actually be more engaged in defending Ukraine rather than sitting on the sidelines.
Um, David, let's talk budget now. It's just a couple of weeks away. The government is, you know, doing a familiar dance pre-budget, trying to paint the story of, you know, being left a budget laden with debt, tough decisions to be made, you know, trying to blame our economic problems on the old lot before it starts to look more and more like the new lot's problem. Fair Mm. enough, perhaps. The Treasurer Jim Chalmers is in IMF meetings in the US at the moment. He says the global picture that he sort of sees firsthand there could still influence some finishing touches of the 25th of October budget. What do you think we are going to get in this budget? Will there be cuts? Will there be more revenue? What are we going to get? I think there'll be more revenue through um, global factors uh, rather than decisions. Mm. Uh, The decisions that will increase revenue uh, mainly come down to taxing multinational corporations more. And I think there's some scope there, but that's something they promised in the uh, Mm. election campaign and something that we expect to see. We're, We're basically counting on it. The global factors will lift energy prices and therefore tax revenue for the government. But at the same time, they're basically talking about a bread and butter budget. I'm not quite sure what a bread and butter budget is, but when I ran that line past Alex Ellinghausen, our photographer, he said, oh, so it's sort of a meal, but it's not a very satisfying one. Oh, I think that's beautiful. a pretty good way it's of sna- looking at it. A snack budget. <laughs> yeah. Um, and also, I... I'm, I'm trying not to see it through that way, even though that's the way Jim Chalmers frames it, because I expect it to be a very significant budget. It's the first budget of an incoming Labor government after nine years of coalition rule. I think we're entitled to regard it as a pivotal budget, as a highly significant budget, not a mundane one that's just about the housekeeping. Um, so I am going to be interested to see whether it has a contractionary effect on the economy or a stimulating effect that might have an impact on inflation. You know, these are the big decisions Mm. that they've got to manage. But I'm not expecting a shock revenue gain, although I think that they're... One of the questions to Jim Chalmers this week was on multinational tax, whether he might be able to raise more revenue than than they thought. And he, he didn't encourage that line of thinking. And I thought there won't have been a temptation for Labor, now they're in charge, to actually go a bit further on multinational tax because they need so many new sources of revenue. Yeah, okay, so that's an area that's perhaps politically safe, Mm. um, I would argue, um, you know, among voters, and also doesn't break the faith with voters, which is key. But on on risky strategies, okay, so they're not going to go near the Stage 3 tax cuts despite the debate. Fran and I have already at the start of the podcast talked about the kind of uh, the messaging around that flying kites now shutting it down, David. Does that though leave them to look at other potential taxes? Is that perhaps not in this budget, but is that a conversation they want to have? I think they do need to have the conversation. They don't. Um, well, I guess they've had a tentative start, but with the kite flying over the income tax revenue um, question, the stage three tax cuts. And that then leads to the follow-on debate about, well, if you can't do stage three and amend it in some way, then you're going to have to look at other options. And I guess now that's out there. So the kite flying has served that purpose. Um, It's starting a tentative debate, but they're not really, by the look of it, keen on doing a tax review. Um, We have a poor history of tax reviews in this country in recent times in terms of them leading to practical change that's sustained. So that might be appropriate. Find well, good some on other them way. for not wasting our time then. If yeah, not. on a review well, that doesn't yeah. lead no, to anything. I, 
Yeah, well, that's true, but I, I don't think I don't think a tax review is necessarily a waste of time. I mean, we've got to get it right, but. Um, you know, the last one, yes, the Henry Tax Review, basically it, most of it gathered dust, which is, you know, I think a shame after all that work from all those considered people, to be yeah. honest. And there's more of that going on at the moment. I mean, the treasurer, Jim Chalmers, you know, clearly wants to be a treasurer for our times. We've got these major reforms to fund aged care, childcare, defence and disability, very costly. Um, but, you know, we also have a budget with a big structural deficit, which means structural reforms are needed. Let's just listen to this answer he gave to PK in the week about this. You're going to need more structural reform, aren't you, Treasurer? Most likely. You know, and this, this is the conversation I want to have with the Australian people about, you know, how do we pay for the services uh, and the kind of government that people have a right to expect, you know, the type of government that they need and deserve. And in those areas that we've identified, uh, aged care and health care and NDIS and defence spending, combine that with the rising costs of paying off this debt or servicing this debt, you know, that is a combination of desirable spending and unavoidable spending. And so we do need a national conversation uh, about all of that. And the October budget was never intended to be the end of that conversation. It was intended to be the beginning of it. Okay, David. So the, so the Treasurer, Jim Chalmers, uh, talks a lot about wanting to have these big national conversations. This week, he got some conversation starters himself from some pretty big Australians. Rod Sims, the former head of the ACCC, a range of senior economists, including Chris Richardson from Deloitte, all saying we need major tax reform, that the tax base is just not big enough. But so far, apart from the multinational tax, which you talked about, which was an election pledge, the government seems to be rejecting the ideas for, you know, how you might change that tax mix. For instance, to taxing mining and energy companies more at the moment, because they're experiencing a real boom time at the yeah. moment. I mean, is this government going to be a reforming government? I think... Uh, it's a bit early to try and hazard a guess, isn't it? Because this week, um, in one of his press conferences, Jim Chalmers was asked about, say, a higher tax on um, oil and gas exports, oil and gas production, because, I mean, I know we did a, we did a survey of, of voters and we found clear majority support for a higher tax on, on that sector. Um, but he didn't encourage that as a, as a, a near-term option. Intriguingly, he didn't, he didn't say never, ever. He just said it wasn't the priority or some words like that. So it's not in this budget, probably not in the May budget, but I think it's out there as an option for the future. He didn't, he didn't sort of squash it. Um, so I think that there is still that debate where they will have to have a consideration of some of these options in due course because um, other than resources or changes to company tax across the board, I don't see easy options for them, or there are no easy options for them in increasing tax revenue because of the the, the lesson that they got about uh, in 2019 on um, franking credits, negative gearing, and uh, changes to capital gains tax. So they've limited their own options. They have to move very carefully to open up other options over time. And it is interesting that Jim Chalmers is moving very slowly, I think, on opening up other revenue options at the moment. Yeah, and the other big headache hitting the government is energy prices. As we say, CEO of Alenta Energy is predicting that power prices in Australia could soar by 35% next year. That's a lot. <laughs> I don't have to explain that to anyone who pays their bills uh, for individual householders, but also for businesses. 
um, particularly manufacturing businesses that need a lot of power. And this government has pledged that power bills would go down. Now, those two things don't match. And we know that the opposition still trying to find their voice. But on this one, they do repeat that this is a broken promise. Now Jim Chalmers has put the gas trigger back on the table based on price. Of course, you know, supply they've dealt with, but they haven't dealt with price yet. No, and I think this is where the the windfall tax idea becomes problematic. I guess you can apply a windfall tax on on oil and gas exports. Maybe you're only affecting export prices there, but I think um, when I talk to people in the government, they're not eager to to push a tax as the option. I think they would much prefer regulation to push prices down. And I think that's where the argument's going to go with gas. It's about the rules um, to limit prices. There's been some agreement already on supply, but I think what's what's happened inside among cabinet ministers basically is that they've got a heads of agreement with gas exporters. They thought it was okay. Madeline King, the resources minister, was quite happy with it, I think. Now they're looking with second thoughts about that and they realise it wasn't tough enough and they're going to, going to, they're going to have to get harder. Uh, and that's the debate among cabinet ministers. And clearly there's a constituency pretty much led by Ed Husick, the industry minister, saying that um, the gas companies are like a plague of locusts, basically. Um, he wants a harder edge mm. against them. But I think it's going to have to be regulation uh, to push the price down regulation on supply, for instance, rather than a tax being the answer there. Yes, Ed Husick has a colourful way with words, doesn't he? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, He's going hard. But also, David, they're going hard there, but as as you said, they're not going for that windfall profit tax thing, uh, presumably still smarting or scared off by the super profit tax campaign from the mining companies and others. You know, when Kevin Rudd was Prime Minister, that really kind of, they they hadn't expected that and that really clobbered them. Um, David, a small but significant piece of good news for the Albanese government this week, though, the Resolve poll in your newspaper put Labor well ahead now on a primary vote of 39% to 30%, a significant swing to the government since the election. But they also led the Liberals by 36 to 30 points on better economic management, which is traditionally Labor's weak point in these polls, isn't it? So this turnaround in public perception could be very important for the government, especially as they're going into a budget. Or do you think this is just the post-election honeymoon bounce and you know the opposition's in the doldrums on all fronts? I think the opposition's clearly uh, in a in a bit of a uh, in a political mess. But this is now the third survey that where we found this, and I think other polling is also showing Labor's ahead. But I think you're right to highlight the economic management um, fact in the in our poll, and also we found similar results on things like managing the nation's finances, i.e., budget management, and Labor's ahead. I think this is a really strong foundation for Anthony Albanese and pretty much every cabinet minister in every portfolio to build on that support and to be a reforming government because I think they've got the will of the people. Um, I think it's actually a good good grounds for being very wary to break an election promise on stage three tax. Keep that mm. support that they've got among voters, handle it with care, and then when it does need to be used for tough decisions on economic reform, you know, use it then once they've lined everything up. Um, but that's, I guess, why uh, the budget on October 25 will be the start of that conversation because they've got to they've got to really set their priorities and consider which fights are the most important ones for them 
on restructuring the budget, whether it's stage three or whether it's other revenue mechanisms. But they're now getting the trust of voters on economic management and they can use that wisely if they uh, play their cards right. Mm. And and if they manage to do that also on national security, it's an observation of mine, and I think Claire O'Neill has made a good head start in mm. that area. Yeah. So Jim Chalmers in Treasury, Claire O'Neill um, in Home Affairs, if they can neutralise or um, get themselves in, in a better position in terms of public perception on those two strongholds for conservatives, that's a bit of a game changer, isn't it, David? Well, I found it quite something in our survey where we ask about national security and defence and the coalition were ahead of Labor by one point. And in fact, when I checked with our pollster, it was a fraction of one percentage point. So uh, that's something that you would not believe from all the rhetoric you hear from Liberal and national leaders about why they're the better side on on defence and, and security. I think that the re-evaluation of Scott Morrison's time as Prime Minister, especially with the five portfolio thing, I think, has actually um, done a lot to help Labor in assuring voters that it's more capable or the better side on, on or as all these key Jim portfolios. Chalmers says the adults in the room. Yeah. And so I, I think we are seeing that re-evaluation reflected in the polls. It's really a huge shift not just since the election, but since, say, this time last year when there were assumptions about which side was better on which policy. You know, quite a yes, momentous you know shift. What they say, you know what they say, David, one poll does not a summer make. <laughs> I mean, I know we've had a couple, but they're early polls. Let's see how the first budget goes down. I think that's going to be uh, the real sign of how the government's going and how much, how much uh, leeway they've got up their sleeve here. David, great to have you again on The Party Room. Thank you so much. Thank you to both of you. Cheers. Thanks, David. We'll move to questions without notice. We give the call to the Leader of the Opposition. Thank you very much, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Prime Minister. Order. The bells are ringing. Uh, that means it's time for question time. And this week's question comes from Beck Yule, who tweeted using the hashtag The Party Room. And you can do that too. The question is this. Why doesn't the media or Labor care about the job seeker rate anymore. Raising the rate is one thing that will actually flow money back into the economy, as was proved during 2020-2021. Why is it all about the tax cuts and nothing about the vulnerable we need to assist? Fran? Well, that's a good question, isn't it? Because ultimately, you know, the budget, um, everything comes down to the budget. There's a lot of pressures on it at the moment, as you would have heard. I know, you know, we've already talked about the childcare changes, the um, NDIS reforms from the Royal Commission that flowed from the Royal Commission, um, the same with the aged care reforms, and then there's the defence budget as things are sort of hotting up around the world, as we've discussed too. So everything has a cost, and uh, I think it, I think $160 a fortnight increase in job seeker cost the budget about uh, $5.4 extra. So, you know, for the sort of increase people are talking out, it's less than $3 billion a year, which doesn't sound like much, but it's every year ongoing. So that's why governments are resisting it. I think that's absolutely the only reason. Um, this government, I think, has conceded on a number of occasions that it's it's too tough to live on JobSeeker as it is, and they would like to increase it, but they need to address the you know huge budget debt and deficit that is looming in the wake of the pandemic. Um, I do feel there is pressure really getting to a point, though, where it's going to be 
too much for the government to avoid. People cannot live on JobSeeker. It is inhumane to expect people to do it. It's, you know, what is it, less than 400 a week or 400 a week plus a bit of rent assistance. You know, you can barely get a room in any of our capital cities for that much, let alone, you know, live a life. So something is going to need to change here, but um, it's not going to happen in the next, it's certainly not going to happen in this budget. But it does go back when you ask about tax and that question. It's interesting because it does actually link back to the discussion about how much those tax cuts cost. Because at the core of that question is uh, actually having enough revenue, having enough money in the budget to pay for big things that, that actually do help the vulnerable and you can't if you don't widen. So perhaps if the government makes the ultimate decision that it doesn't want to get that by breaking an election promise and making individual taxpayers pay, right, because, you know, there is an argument that we pay too much individual tax in our country that some people mount, accepting that you need to perhaps find it somewhere else if you want to pay for these things. Like how long is a piece of string? Like you can't just keep... Oh, more PPL. Oh, more New Start. I mean, I'm. No, that's they're, right. They're, it's they're it's all good ideas, but you need to pay for them. Exactly. As we were discussing with David, it's about broadening the tax base. That is what's going to need to happen. And every budget is priorities. And at this point, the job seeker payment is not the priority of this government, which is very tough for all those Australians who are struggling to live on it. That's the truth of it. Keep your questions coming in because we do love getting them and you can tweet using the hashtag The Party Room or email your questions to thepartyroom at abc.net.au. And you can follow us in The Party Room on the ABC Listen app so you never miss an episode. Never, ever. That's it for The Party Room this week. Yep, we'll be back next week. See you, PK. See you, Fran. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.